Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 7, a bonus episode for the month of October 2011. The topic of today is the Apollo moon hoax, but rather than discuss a specific claim or specific set of claims, I'm going to give you the audio from a presentation I did in August at the Colorado Springs Skepticamp. This does not mean that I won't do a more detailed episode about some of these claims in the future. I've just gotten some requests for the audio from this talk, and so I thought this would be a good venue to get it out. Since it's a bonus episode, there won't be a puzzler at the end. This talk is also long. The presentation is normally a one-hour talk, and I do use up the entire time, but I had to trim it down for this to about 40 to 50 minutes, and I still went a little long. Remember, this was a live recording, so the audio isn't the best. The loud thumping that you may occasionally hear is me smacking the go forward button on my computer in order to advance to the next slide. Also, this was a presentation given to adults. So before I start the recording, I need to say up front that my podcast does have the clean tag, but this episode in particular contains some instances of coarse language. By that, I mean it has a few Penn and Teller clips, so parents be warned, the F-bomb is dropped once or twice. With that said, welcome back in time to the Colorado Springs Skepticamp. Okay, so now we have Stuart Robbins, the Apollo moon hoax, why we did not not go to the moon. So give him a big hand. Thank you. Yes, the double negative was left out of the, uh, the schedule. So I am not advocating that we didn't go to the moon. I'm advocating that we didn't, didn't go to the moon. So thank you for coming to my presentation, as opposed to that other one about the creationists. Um, The reason that this kind of talk is actually necessary is because there are some people out there who believe that we never went to the moon. A 1999 Gallup poll shows that about 6% of Americans don't think we went to the moon. But then a 2006 poll of 18 to 26-year-old college-educated people put the number at 10%, and then a 2009 UK poll put it at 25% of people have doubts that we went to the moon. Even if it's 1% of the population, just of Americans, that means that over 3 million people think we didn't go to the moon. So this kind of numbers, those kinds of numbers make this probably the most widespread conspiracy theory about space out there other than UFOs. So my approach this afternoon is going to talk about claims that are made and then show why they're wrong. The claims can be divided into three main categories, with the main, main, main one being the photographic claims, then the environmental, and then technological. And then I'm going to wrap up with what the moon hoax landing has to actually claim in order to be a valid quote-unquote theory. The format of this talk is that I'm going to present the claim or I'm going to let the people who believe in the conspiracy present their claim, and then I'm going to actually go through and say, no, this is why you're wrong. So to start out with, photography. These cameras were so difficult to manipulate. How were thousands of photos taken with crystal clarity? Precise framing. The pictures that we see that allegedly were taken on the moon are absolutely perfect. 
So the key phrase there is the pictures that we see. For every one picture that NASA put out in the 1960s and 70s from Apollo, there were a hundred ones that they didn't put out. That's because this is something called a public relations campaign from NASA. They wanted to show our proud astromen, for those of you who saw the Simpsons clip earlier, the astronauts proudly stepping out onto the lunar landscape and taking good pictures. Photographs back in the 60s and 70s were expensive to duplicate, and so they simply didn't release the bad ones. Nowadays, you can go to plenty of online NASA Apollo archival websites and see that there were hundreds of really crappy photos. There were the lens flares, there was the ghosting, and there was the ghosts, if you were in the previous talk. Oh, I think that's an orb. Or, well, aren't orbs ghosts? Yeah, it's Apollo 18. What about still photography? Some say the design of the bulky spacesuits would have made it extremely difficult for the astronauts to operate their chest-mounted cameras. The man who designed these cameras is Jan Lundberg. Once on the moon, on the lunar surface, in the dress, in the light surface system, you couldn't see the camera. They couldn't bend their head that far down. They had no viewfinder, they had to aim by moving their body. So, by the way, uh, so far the clips are from the Fox docudrama from the late 90s, uh, Conspiracy Theory, Did We Land on the Moon? Uh, there will be other clips in here from Bart Seibrell's famous or infamous movie, and then uh, I think one or two clips from Penn and & Teller, and hence why there was the warning about language. <laughs> so, there were a couple claims thrown out there. One, The main one there was that the cameras would not have been able to be operated by the astronauts with the big, bulky gloves. Well, this is something where NASA actually planned ahead. They knew that the astronauts were going to wear bulky gloves. They practiced with the astronauts with spacesuits on, and so they designed the cameras with extra-large adjustment mechanisms, not the kind of adjustment mechanisms that the people going around with cameras today are having, but big ones, so that the astronauts would actually be able to manipulate the cameras in order to take the pictures that they wanted. In terms of aiming... The cameras were mounted on their chests, as you can see in this photograph here. Because most of the cameras used wide-angle lenses, all the astronauts had to do was just generally orient their body in the direction that they wanted to take the picture, and it would capture a wide view, and that's how they did it. In later missions, when they had the telephoto lenses, so those are the long lenses that you see, they had sighting rings, so they actually could tell pretty much exactly where they were pointing the camera. In terms of this whole autofocus, auto-exposure, you have to remember people could photograph before there were computers. Again, in the previous talk over in the other room, we saw the ghost photos from the 1800s. They didn't have electronics in the 1800s. So people were able to figure out, in this case, experimentally beforehand exactly what kind of exposure settings they needed in order to photograph properly the lunar surface. Focus rings for focusing mark where on the camera lens it should be turned in order to be in focus for an object a certain distance away. I think I saw about three or four people with SLRs going around today, and if you look at those lenses, you can see that there was a uh, window that has numbers. It says like one meter, two meter, five meter, 10 meter, or infinity, 
and that tells you where it should be turned in order to be focused for a certain distance away. You only have to estimate that, though, because you can change the aperture in order to get different things in focus at different distances. So besides how much light is let in, the aperture of the camera, or the opening, also changes the depth of field. In this picture on the left, I'm showing you an image taken with a very shallow depth of field, which is a wide open aperture or a small f number. In this one, it's a very small aperture, which is a big f number. In both cases, the center of the rulers are in focus, but in the case of the smaller f number or bigger aperture, you have a smaller depth of field. So the astronauts used apertures that were a little bit narrower down in order to get more of the field in focus. They didn't have to be exact in terms of where they turned the focus ring. But there are more claims with the cameras. These can roughly be summarized by film depth. The first goes that Dr. David Grove's PhD has shown that the X-ray environment of space would quickly render photographs unusable. The second part of this is that the temperature during the Apollo missions was really cold to really hot, and that the film should have either fractured or shattered in the cold or melted in the heat. This is an interesting case, and the only one in this version of the talk with the argument from authority, Dr. David Grove's PhD. I have a PhD too. Both of us can't be right. <laughs> in this case, I'm right. <laughs> because I said so. Also, the radiation study that Dr. David Grove's PhD did was full of holes. He didn't use the same film. He didn't use the same shielding. He didn't use the same camera that the Apollo astronauts did. He exposed the film to over a thousand times the radiation level, had the hardness of the radiation that the astronauts experienced at the moon, and he exposed the film to six years' worth of that radiation as opposed to two weeks' worth. His study has nothing to do with whether or not the Apollo film would have survived. In terms of temperature, this is the first case in this talk where your everyday experience on Earth does not prepare you for what to expect on the moon. Heat is transferred in three different ways. You have convection, which is the most efficient way to transfer heat, and that's where stuff is physically mixing together. That's much like a pot of water boiling on a stove. You get these convection cells of it moving around. There's also conduction. That's where your stove element is physically touching the pot, and then the pot is physically touching the liquid inside to heat stuff up through just touching. The third, third <laughs> mechanism, I can count. The third mechanism is radiative heat, or radiative energy, and that's basically the sun or any light source sending out energy. So for example, on Earth, the sun's <coughs> radiative energy is absorbed by the surface of the Earth, most part. The surface of the Earth heats up, physically conducts that heat to the bottom layer of the atmosphere. That's why we can feel the atmosphere has heat, especially in this particular room. <laughs> and then once it's in the atmosphere, it physically mixes around, which is why we have these fans going to try to circulate the heat to cool us down. On the moon, that's not the case. You have the surface and then you have nothing. So the only way to heat the astronauts up and the film up is through the least efficient way to transfer heat, the radiative heat from the sun or the reflected radiative heat 
from the lunar surface. There's also conduction from the astronauts' boots uh, from the lunar surface, but that's fairly minimal. So both the cameras and the astronauts were covered with reflective material, Phil had extra protection, temperature was not an issue. Here, a crosshair, which was burned directly into the image from the film plate, and thus should always appear on top of the objects in the photograph, appears behind the object in the scene, clearly revealing a composite of two pictures into one. This is an interesting claim, and gets to some of the, uh, to use a polite word, idiocy of some of the hoax claims. It's true that the cameras had a glass plate that was placed between the lens and the film. This glass plate was etched with crosshairs. They were all the same size except for the center one, which was bigger. If you want to sound intelligent or perhaps pretentious, you can call the crosshairs fiducials. These fiducials were very, very thin, only 0.1 millimeters. Very thin. Now you have to ask the question, if you're making a hoax that is 5% of your entire national budget, why would you screw this up? Why wouldn't you just take the pictures the way NASA said they were taken instead of trying to add the crosshairs later on in some sort of more expensive composite technique where you're more likely to screw it up? It just it doesn't make any sort of sense. You have to believe that they are the most stupid people in the world, but yet also the most intelligent to be able to pull this off. In terms of why we have these crosshairs disappearing, it's because they appear to disappear behind a very bright object. So you have a case of anyone who's done photocopies or scanning before knows of saturation, bleeding, and generally low-quality reproductions. So the hoax people like to show you images like this. In fact, this was from that movie clip where the crosshair appears to disappear behind this bright part of the lunar rover or this piece of equipment. What they don't show you is the original image where you can clearly see the crosshair is there, it's just a little bit lighter. Saturation means where the film can't record any more light. Say that piece of the film could only record between 0 and 100 photons or particles of light. This equipment, let's say, is reflecting, in that span of time that the shutter was open, 150 photons. The fiducial was blocking 10 of those. So in the areas where the fiducial would be, you have 140 photons reaching the camera. It can only record 100, so it's still going to appear white. That isn't the case in this particular image, but that's the case in several others where you do have the fiducials actually covered up, behind a bright white object. But we still have more claims with crosshairs, where in some photographs, the large crosshair, the one that's supposed to be in the center, isn't. And the others are all tilted and not aligned properly with the image boundaries. The film used by the Apollo cameras was square. All examples of this are rectangular especially in this day and age where everyone has access to basic image manipulation stuff. It's called crop and rotate. Remember, this was a public relations campaign, and a little bit of science was done on the side. So here's what they sort of like to show you. They show you the large crosshair, off-centered, and all of them are tilted. This image is also 500 by 400 pixels, 
but the astronaut is majestically descending the ladder onto the flat, wild wilderness of the lunar plains, as opposed to the original image, where it looks like the astronaut is falling down a ladder onto a giant hill, and the guy holding up the camera was half drunk. This isn't the kind of picture you would want to see on the front of the New York Times. This one is. But in the original, the large crosshair, which you can't quite make out because of the light in the room, but take my word for it, I'm a PhD. <laughs> large crosshair is centered. The other ones are properly aligned with the image edges. Here's an astronaut who descends into a huge shadow cast by the lunar module. And his entire body is still visible. How is it that he is not shrouded in darkness? Here's the same maneuver from another Apollo mission. Again, the astronaut is brightly lit in what is an obviously dark shadow. And in this picture, the sun is directly behind the astronaut. His figure should be a silhouette. Yet even the smallest characteristics of his suit are recognizable. I hear some laughter. How many of you can see the moon in this picture? Raise your hand. Okay, so about a third of you are still awake and paying attention. Some of you are very good at sleeping with your eyes open. The fact that you can see the moon in that picture, in fact, the fact that you can see anything in here, has to do with light having an interesting property. It bounces off of things. It reflects in this particular image, in fact, in all the images from the moon, there was only one light source, the sun. In this one, the sun was probably over here somewhere behind that wall. The sun had light that bounced off the surface of the moon, and some of it bounced back into the camera. Some of it bounced onto the astronaut. Some of the light from the astronaut bounced into the camera. The fact that you can see this means that light bounces. Again, this is sort of one of those claims that when you first hear it, yeah, why, if you're in shadow, why are you lit up? But when you actually stop to think about what's really going on, the answer becomes fairly clear. When objects are lit solely by the sun, as all the scenes on the moon were said to be, after all, lighting equipment was not only impractical, it was unnecessary in bright sunlight, then all shadows, regardless of the landscape, will run parallel with one another and never intersect, as shown by this example. In these seldom seen photographs, obtained from a rarely used auxiliary NASA archival site, it is clear that these scenes were lit with artificial light. These shadows, which are cast at different angles, are evidence that a second light source is being used. Again, intersecting shadows, and again, and again. It is simply impossible for this picture to have been taken with sunlight on the moon. Now, despite the sad spinster music and the narrator's beautiful British accent, um, although I've, I've heard better, I think Rich's British accent is better. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Rich. Um, you do hear a bit of this conspiracy twist, or conspirator, conspiratorial twist, in what she says. You have the seldom-seen photographs obtained from a rarely-used auxiliary archival NASA website. 
What that means is that no one is interested in digging through tens of thousands of photos to find one or two that look like they have an anomaly to support your hoax claim. That's all that really means. But by saying that, it gives it a conspiratorial twist. Now, this is an interesting case. How many of you have ever done theater work or done photography work or done anything that has to do with lighting? Okay, about a fifth of you. So, or a quarter, I can't guesstimate very well. Uh, so, you know then, if you have multiple light sources, that it's not that you get a single shadow from one object going in one direction and a single shadow from another object going in a different direction. You get multiple shadows going from the same object in different directions. Very much like this famous scene from Victor Fleming's The Wizard of Oz. You have Dorothy, the Scarecrow, and Toto casting shadows in different directions. You don't have the Scarecrow's shadow going that way and Dorothy's going that way. However, no hoax conspiracist has ever pointed to any photograph on the moon that shows any object casting more than one shadow as it must if there was more than one light source. What's really going on are varied topography and perspective issues, despite what Bart Seibrell has his narrator say. He claims that this is showing you different topography, where different topography is a flat grass and flat road. That's not different topography. Kind of ironically, he provides different, photo or different topography with his car, and you can clearly see that the shadows go in different directions. <laughs> so they like to show you images like this, where you have shadows going every which way. That's because of topography. They don't show you, go outside, have flat ground in a hill, and you have shadows going in different directions. In terms of perspective, this is something that you may have learned, or you probably learned, you may have forgotten, that in third grade or middle school or elementary school art class. Perspective. Remember when you had to draw the road with telephone poles and they got smaller and smaller and converged at a single point? That's perspective. They show you an image like this and say, look, these shadows are going in different directions. It's perspective. They don't show you a simple experiment you can do on your own. I had a single light source. It was over here. This was to show I walked straight backwards. I started nearly on top of the bowl, and then I walked backwards. And you can see that the shadow moves. It's only because of perspective. Until finally, when you're pretty far away, it goes almost horizontally. So putting these effects together, you get something like this, with shadows going every which way. That brings us to the final photographic claim, and that's the stars. This is probably one of the main claims having to do with photography from the Apollo missions. The claim goes in why. Why are there hardly any stars visible in the Apollo pictures? The answer is simple. Professional astronomers would quickly calculate that the configuration and distances of star formations are incorrect, and so NASA had to remove them to make sure they could keep up the scan. This is a really another really stupid claim that when you first hear it might seem to make sense. In terms of the whole conspiracy thing, though, you know, I just got my PhD, just out of grad school, kind of poor. Why didn't NASA just hire? maybe one or two of these astronomers that would have calculated that the stars were wrong and told them where to put the stars so they could get it right. It doesn't make sense. And I can tell you a secret. The astronomers could have built quite a lot 
for very easy work because the stars would be in the exact same spot as they are from Earth. Even though the moon is about 378,000 kilometers away, uh, 250,000 miles, something like that, it's not very far. And the stars would be, to the eye, in the exact same spot as they are on Earth. In terms of why this is a misconception, well, the misconception is that the sky is black, it must be night, so there must be stars. That's our experience on Earth. Right now, if we did not have an atmosphere, it's daytime out, the sky would be black if we did not have an atmosphere. does not mean that it's night. does not mean that we should see stars. The cameras were set to expose for the surface of the moon for the day, not the nighttime on the moon for the stars. Although, in fact, they actually did take some star pictures later on with ultraviolet cameras. That was in later missions, and the hopes people like to not point out. Just a question, quick question. Uh, are, are maybe the audience is primed because we're so used to seeing stars in science fiction? Where are you getting that? I wasn't going to address that, but I can. Uh, science fiction is wrong. <laughs> science fiction. Yes. Um, in fact, later on, you'll see another clip of Bart Seidrell's movie where he shows the Earth from space and has all these stars in it. That would not be the case. You would not be able to see... You, you don't see stars unless you take a very long exposure. So, Right, so... Next two slides. So you can go outside, not tonight because we're nearing a new moon, but go outside in about two weeks and try to take a picture of the moon. To take a proper exposure, this was at 1 60th of a second. That's fairly fast. You can do that during daytime and not get saturation. This was at about F8, 1 60th of a second, displays a beautiful picture of the moon, if I do say so myself. But there are no stars. No stars. To start to get stars, you have to take a much longer exposure. In fact, this was five seconds, and in the original, there actually is one or two stars that you can see. This is Jupiter, one of the brightest objects in the sky, behind the moon, behind the sun, behind Venus. Jupiter is seen in five seconds. Stars are barely seen in five seconds. The moon is completely overblown. That's why we don't see stars in the Apollo pictures. So that brings us to the environmental claims. Someone apparently forgot to create a burn printer underneath the lunar module's 10,000-pound thrust engine, despite the fact that during ground tests, there was a real concern for the vehicle falling into the hole the engine created as it descended. Here is a Norman Rockwell depiction drawn based on the latest specifications and scientific data. In these enlargements, it looks as though the lunar module was simply placed there. Yes, a Norman Rockwell depiction does not science reality make. <laughs> it does look like the lunar module was sort of simply placed there. Although you have to think of, in this case, a blast as more like a blast of air, puff of air, as opposed to a blast crater, like with a hundred megatons of TNT or whatever a good number is. So... This was actually more informative of what the lunar surface was like rather than it being a hoax. Scientists like it when we see something that we didn't quite expect. This whole idea of scientists maintain the status quo is kind of really stupid. 
But another thing you'll hear, in fact, you heard in Bart Sibrell's narrator say, you'll hear this 10,000 pounds of thrust. They don't mention this was throttleable down to 10% of that. 1,000 pounds of thrust. Still sounds like a lot. Let's do a little simple math in physics. We can take the exit nozzle diameter of the engine. It's big, about five feet, big area, simple division, and we get a maximum thrust per area of about 3.2 pounds per square inch. This was throttleable down to 10% of that, so small. 0.4 to 3.2. Now I hear some of you laughing. One person said, wow. To people who aren't engineers or plumbers or physicists, this may not seem like a number that makes any sense to you. Like, okay, so what? Let's compare it to a human footstep. The average adult human weighs about 150 pounds. In America, it might be 180. But (laughs) we'll we'll keep the math simple. 150 pounds. Well, in Boulder, it's more like 120, and I feel bloated, but that's a different issue. So, 150-pound person, the average footstep is about 50 square inches. Years may vary. Do simple math. Pressure of a footstep, 3 PSI, equivalent to the maximum thrust from this engine nozzle. The fact that when the astronauts were bouncing around the moon and they didn't make a blast crater under their feet should give you enough evidence that there really should not have been a big blast crater from the engine. Unbeknownst to the citizenry, high above the Earth, beginning at an altitude of 1,000 miles and extending an additional 25,000 miles, lay lethal bands of radiation called the Van Allen Radiation Belts. Every space mission in history with humans on board, from both the United States and Soviet Union, from the first in 1961 to the present, has been well below this deadly radiation. So here you have the stars. Mercury, Gemini, Soyuz, Skylab, the Space Shuttle, all maintained altitudes well below 1,000 miles. All except Apollo. To survive the hour and a half journey through this radiation field necessary to reach the moon and return, solid lead shielding between the astronauts and the exposure outside would be required. The response to that for me to begin with when I first heard this was, where's your math? This is actually an often repeated claim that you need six feet of lead shielding, but no one has actually stood up to say, yes, here's the math, this is why. In fact, lead shielding is one of the worst methods to protect you from the type of radiation in the Van Allen belts. The radiation, so actually, backtrack slightly, uh, this six foot of lead shielding, besides no one ever having actually claimed to take credit for it, I was only able to find two references. One was in the 1980s where someone said you need six feet of lead shielding to protect a crew of astronauts on a 2,000-year trip to the nearest star. The other reference was in the 1930s by a physicist who said that a certain type of radiation was eliminated by the time you got to the bottom of the lake, and when you added the column density of the lake water to the atmosphere, you got six feet of lead shielding, of sort of. It, It has nothing to do with Apollo. So the radiation type in the Van Allen belts are alpha particles and beta particles. Alpha particles is a fancy physics term for helium. To protect against alpha particles, you can surround the spaceship in a helium balloon, you know, a rubber balloon. 
that'll protect you. A piece of paper will protect you from a helium particle because helium is big, heavy, and generally low energy. Electrons, not so much. Now, the electrons will be blocked by lead shielding. But the problem is, is that when you absorb an electron with metal, you have a tendency to produce bremsstrahlung radiation, which is a big fancy physics term, which means higher energy radiation, and you knock off x-rays. Those are more dangerous to the astronauts than the particles you're trying to shield against. What you really want to protect against these electrons are low-density materials, like uh, plastics, which is what they used, or actually water would be a good shield, but you can't really build a spaceship out of water unless you're a Zindi, a really bad uh, series of Star Trek. <laughs> so their worst mechanism, or their best mechanism to shield you is actually physically the worst mechanism. Besides this, the mission profile, you know, NASA's not stupid. They know the Van Allen radiation belts was there, or were there, are there, still today. They went through a thin part of them so that the total exposure time round trip was only about three hours. The astronauts wore detection meters, and they found that they got an average dose that's only about five times the average dose to an American. This is more than the average dose that plane pilots get. The maximum dosage was still less than 0.7% of a lethal dosage, and yet this claim still persists. Now we're going to get to one of the other very big environmental claims. If there's no air or wind on the moon, why is this American flag waving? The fact that the flag flaps on the moon where there's no atmosphere means that there must have been a little blast of wind out in Area 51 where they shot this. Yeah, Area 51 is really big. It, it hides a lot of conspiracy things. So why do we see the flag waving? Well, first, if anyone ever shows you a picture of the American flag on the moon, and they say, look, the flag is waving, ask them how you see motion in a still picture. You can't see motion in a still photo. It is not waving. It has ripples in it that are stationary because in the airless environment of the moon, there's no way for the ripples to dissipate other than the inertia of the cloth. It's just going to sort of hang there and very, very slowly settle out. The reason that it's not taut is because during Apollo 11, they had trouble connecting the rods that were actually going to keep it taut. They just said, screw it, and went on with the actual science and getting you know, home safely. But they liked the look, and future missions liked the look too, so they didn't bother with the rods that would keep it taut. In fact, you can go to YouTube and find hours of footage of the Apollo moon landings that focus, you know, have the flag in the picture, and you will see it with ripples in it that just stay there. Don't move whatsoever unless the astronaut is physically twisting it. But that brings us to one of the other major, major claims, the infamous sea rock. Uh, the sea rock, that's a beauty. See my little C right there? That's a capital C. That's a prop C. That's what you use when you make it sets. What Renee is referring to is that he thinks Hollywood art directors label props with letters to indicate where the props go. You know, this isn't our first go fucking. We've never seen 
props labeled with letters? Rudy here is our director. Rudy, you ever seen a props labeled with letters? Fuck no. Who <laughs> clearly knows more about props than anyone in bullshit is sure this rock is a misplaced prop. Somehow, this this guy put the C up. <laughs> he had a whole bunch of ways he could have put that rock and he put it with the C up because that is a definite capital C. So the prop man blew it. This is not the moon. This is a set. Period. That grenade sure has a keen eye for mistakes. Don't forget to sweep the china. <laughs> oh, this space dock can make them empires. And so it's break time. Bring me a bottle of water and get a drink. Give me a He keeps his water in a vodka bottle and labels it with a capital V. <laughs> Let's get back to that supposed prop work. This is just a hair that got caught in the negative when they were making prints of this picture. In the original negative, you can see that that rock is not labeled. See, the hair wasn't in there. So this is just a random question. So Phil pretty much explained it. You know, here's Renee's photo, here's the original photo. But you can say, okay, well, NASA just airbrushed it out after Renee found it. Well, that's not actually true. This is Apollo 17 or Apollo 16 photograph AS16107174446. Now, the photo taken before this, photo AS16107174445, shows that same rock. Let's take a look. No C. For the hoax, or for the conspiracy, well, both, the conspiracy hoax, to be true, both photos would have had to have had the C in it. And you would have had to be incredibly stupid, but yet still incredibly smart to pull this off, to only airbrush it out of one of the photos and not the one that was taken right after this. Now we go more on to rocks. We have the stupidity of scientists claim. Geologists have never seen lunar rocks before. They wouldn't know a genuine one from an ordinary earth rock or one that was made in a magical radiation oven. And I see Rachel banging her head already. <laughs> we have the conspiracy. Okay, so... I Sean, you should be banging your head too. We have the conspiracy that geologists are trained in government-funded and government-controlled universities. If the government wanted to keep the true nature of the lunar sample secret, they certainly could control what these stupid geologists know and learn. And then we... Just study astronomy. It's more interesting. Then you have the really, really twisted one. The U.S. government threatens any geologist with, with threatens any geologist with terrible consequences if he or she should reveal that the samples he or she obtains from NASA are not actual lunar surface samples. Well, this is kind of the equivalent of telling geologists you don't know what the you're doing. The Soviet Union also had sample return missions. Granted, they returned about 0.1 percent as much material as Apollo did. But their samples have been examined by geologists around the world, as have the Apollo samples. They look the same. They look like the geologists, who are sometimes trained in government, sometimes in private universities, would expect the lunar rocks to look like. So you would have to suppose that the entire body of the world's geologists are controlled by the U.S. government, and that the U.S. government and our worst enemy, the Soviets, were in cahoots. 
Or you could just break into, well, they're just patsies for the Illuminati, and at that point I really can't help you. <laughs> so if we break the rocks down and go to dust, we have that the dust is fine-grained and lightweight, and there should be huge clouds of it kicked up by the lunar rover. Well, this claim is true. Dust was kicked up by the lunar rover. In fact, it was such a problem that a fender broke off, and they had to fix it with a spare map and duct tape and a C-clamp. Yes, duct tape was used on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> duct tape was used on the moon. So there's no atmosphere to hold up the dust. So in fact, this is actually the best way, or one of the best ways until about two years ago, to prove that we went to the moon. Because the dust, when it's kicked up by, in this case, the Apollo 16 Grand Prix maneuver, it follows a perfect introductory physics, ballistic trajectory going up and down. It does not billow out. It would have to, unless this were filmed in a vacuum chamber. So somehow, in this Area 51 soundstage, you have the giant multiple lights to create single shadows in different directions, but you also have the big air conditioning system to cool the astronauts down and make the flag wave, but somehow they also made it a vacuum so that the dust didn't billow out. Which brings us to technology, because that's some interesting technology. You have the basic claim that the technology didn't exist, but you have to actually go specific. So people attack the computer technology, especially the younger generation today. And they just say, computers, they didn't exist to go to the moon back then. <laughs> well, it's true. Your calculator, your cell phone, your wristwatch has probably more computing power. Well, I know your cell phone would have more computing power than all of Apollo's computers combined. But they were only used for guidance. This is a case where all because we do something one way now and you might design Apollo with more computer power today doesn't mean they needed it back then. Think of a clock. Today, maybe 5% of you have a wristwatch. More percent of you have a cell phone. You use those to tell time. You use electronics and quartz crystals and the atomic clock up in Boulder to tell time. And it glows in the dark and a stopwatch and all this other stuff. That doesn't mean you need that to tell time. People have been keeping accurate time for hundreds of years with just gears, and hundreds of years before that with just the sun and a stick. You don't need high technology, or as high as people think, to go to the moon. Technology necessary to launch the massive Saturn V rocket and an intercontinental ballistic missile is 95% similar. When the Soviet Union launched mankind's first satellite, Sputnik, in 1957, there was grave concern that they had mastered space ahead of the United States and might use this advantage to launch a first nuclear strike from an orbit high above North America. When they also put the first animal in space, then the first man in space, then achieved the first spacewalk, the first crew of three, and the first ever of two simultaneously orbiting spacecrafts, Concern turned to fear and then horror as America watched their communist enemy achieve all these firsts with no hope in sight of ever catching up. That's an impressive list of firsts. First spaceflight, man in space, man to orbit, woman in space, crew of three, spacewalk, two orbit, and the first lunar landing. Big, impressive list. Let's take a look. Not so impressive. First space flight, that's important. That really really made the Americans go, oh shit. 
I wasn't alive back then, but I've been told I've seen archival video footage. And it was featured in an episode of Star Trek. So. <laughs> the first man in space, Yuri Gagarin. That's also pretty darn important. The first man to orbit? Not quite true. Under the United States and USSR agreement to set records, in order to be counted as the first person, could have been a woman, first person to orbit, you had to land. Yuri Gagarin did not land. He parachuted out because the landing gear failed, although the, United, or the USSR did not admit to that until 40 years later. So technically, John Glenn was the first man to orbit the Earth. First woman in space, great for Valentina, doesn't really have anything to do with technology. First crew of three, it's sort of true. Yes, they were the first crew of three, but they stuck them in a two-person craft. In order to fit the third person in, they tossed out the spacesuits and all the safety gear. Awesome. Yeah. The first two orbiting craft to rendezvous. Not true. They were the first two orbiting craft to come close together because of the way they launched them into orbit. It wasn't until our Gemini 6 and 7 that we actually were able to have two craft physically maneuver to rendezvous, which is kind of what you need if you're launching from the moon, want to get to the command module, and then back to Earth. So, yeah, the Soviet program was based on ballistic missile technology with a goal of the record setting. They wanted to do the sexy or the, you know, gloating, we did it first, nanny nanny boo boo. But their firsts were usually followed by the United States within weeks and sometimes even days. In fact, with the Gemini program for the United States, that was what set us up, the astronauts and the controllers, for the Apollo program. We set rendezvous records, records for endurance, altitude, spacewalk duration, launch time turnaround, all these other things. And the Gemini program was vital for getting us ready for that. The Soviet program, not so much. Wrap up to wake you up. Why a hoax? Well, there are a couple different psychological reasons. We like to account for variations in observation. You see one thing, I see another, we have a conspiracy. It's really not that hard. We're naturally distrustful authority figures. When was the last time you trusted a congressman? We like to be on the inside or think that we're on the inside. We want to say to our date, our husband, our wife, hey, I know something nobody else knows, and it's about a giant, giant government conspiracy. I could be killed if people find out that I know about it. Let's have sex. <laughs> They also do it to seem intelligent, although those two you know, might not actually go together. Also, there's this whole entertainment and shock value. I mean, this is why Alex Jones has a radio show. Shock value, people listen. It's more interesting to have a conspiracy than to say, okay, yeah, we went to the moon. But what the hoaxes are is that they say either NASA's views must be completely correct, down to the smallest, minute detail, or the conspiracy is true, and you have to believe us, and you can't believe them. But to be true, it must have actually been easier to create and maintain a consistent, consistent, and I point that out because I pointed out a lot of stuff during this talk that was not consistent. It has to be a consistent conspiracy in order to actually be valid. But rather, they employ contradicting arguments, arguments from authority, circular arguments, unoriginal evidence. In fact, they're a lot like creationists with that. Creationists present evidence, in quotes, against evolution. 
They don't actually present evidence for creation. It's against something. It's the same thing with the moon hoax. They present evidence against NASA. They don't actually present evidence, or much, for their own views. Now, there's a lot of stuff I left out because of time, and this is a shortened version. Um, but really, the bottom line is that in order to make a hoax claim, all you have to do is see or hear something that doesn't completely make sense to you, and you have a hoax. The conspiracists rely upon just convincing you that any single one of their arguments is plausible, and that if any single one is true, then that casts doubt on NASA's story. Like, if you believe every single thing I said, except for the radiation, then you can still believe in your conspiracy, even though I disproved everything else. That's why it's also so difficult to refute hoaxes and conspiracies. It's because you have to know about all these different fields. In this case, you have to know about photography, geology, physics, radiation, history, politics, mechanics, heat transport, and all sorts of other fields in order to explain all of the conflicting observations. And that's why it's so much easier to perpetuate a hoax than it is to get rid of it. And I want to end with this. This is actually, so now we do have a spacecraft currently in orbit around the moon called the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. It has a camera on it with sub-meter resolution. In fact, just this month it is dipping to a lower orbit and will able to will be able to get 20 centimeter per pixel resolution, and we can image the Apollo landing sites. This is Apollo 17, the lander, the flag, the dust tracks from the astronauts. And on the Moonzoo Forum, the Moonzoo is a citizen science project. Uh, I happen to be the science PI of it. Uh, on the Moonzoo Forum, some people actually took images of the Apollo landing sites at different sun angles and put together these really cool movies, and you can see almost a 3D effect of Apollo 11 because of the sun's basically moving, or Apollo 17, and you can trace the flag shadow, and you can trace the lunar module lander shadow, and I just thought I would end with that. It's really cool. It's um, 3.49, so if there are any questions, I can take those. I do have a one-minute pen and teller clip that I can end with if there aren't questions, though, or if there's extra time. Rachel? Um, if I remember correctly, Stuart, didn't we also already have some actual lunar rocks yeah, so that, because of time, I left one of those out, is that we do have meteorite samples from the moon that have been collected, and they've been compared with the Apollo and the Luna sample returns, and they compare very well. And we know that those actually, that the sample returns came from the moon as opposed to being just meteorites that they said came from the moon, because when a meteorite comes through the atmosphere, the outer crust burns up or not burns up, it melts and creates what's called a fusion crust. And all meteorites have those as opposed to rocks from the moon because it's an airless environment have these micrometeorite impact points. Those are melted away when it comes from the atmosphere, and so all the Apollo samples have these micrometeorite impacts. All of the ones from Antarctica or elsewhere have the fusion crust. Would you go back, would you go back to the slide with the Russian observers, please? As I trip over things, the Russian firsts. And then when you cross the mountains. Yes. That would be one slightly easier to read, sorry. 
So it's color coded with the. Did, did they have the first lunar landing? So they had the first. It wasn't a manned lunar landing. They, the, the first lunar landing, landing is a polite term for um, lithobrake, is what my advisor calls it, which means that they basically, they crash land. They were the first country to actually have a craft that was sent to the moon and actually made it to the moon. And it crashed. I, I thought that might be a Freudian slip. You came away and you knew. Ah, see, keep You know that I... Although I'm still waiting for my paycheck from NASA. Can you re-explain the part about um, the debunking how it couldn't have been the cold temperatures that hurt the film? So that basically has to do with how heat is transferred. And for heat to be transferred away from the cameras to cool down, it would have to radiate that heat away just basically... So every object that has a temperature also emits light. So you're radiating away heat. You're radiating away light. Um, it's in the, it peaks in the infrared, but every now and then you may pop off an X-ray or two. That's the only way to actually release heat from the cameras is it would just radiate that heat away. The only way for it to absorb heat is like if you go out on a sunny day and you absorb the sun's rays. That's the only way to do it. But you might notice if you wear a white shirt you're going to absorb less heat than if you wear a black shirt. And so the film, or the cameras, and the astronauts were coated in white so that they didn't absorb a lot of light, and the cameras also had extra insulation and extra shielding in order to protect from those uh, differences in temperature. So the only way to actually change the temperature was very, very, very slow radiating, or radiation, radiative energy. That might not be... It, it, Right, it was about. It would have been about the temperature that it was packed up and it got equilibrated to in route because it was in the module, the problem module for three days. I don't know anything about film emulsion or, or what it, you know, I mean, I just don't know how valid any of those arguments are. So I mean, yeah. compensated for if the film's cooler, you can use a higher speed film to compensate for the fact that the reaction is going to be less. What, what they're really claiming is that basically they think that if you take a camera out on the moon, you immediately, if you're in the shade, drop to 200 degrees below, and if you're in the sunlight, you immediately heat up to 200 degrees above. And so what I'm trying to say is, no, that's not the case. It takes much, much, much longer, and the very slow change is not going to be enough of a change to render the film melted or broken up. One of the reasons why the Mm -hmm. Okay, so I saw the five-minute sign a bit ago. I I have the time at three fifty three forty. Do I have a minute? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I don't like to go over. I really hate it when professors go over and they keep you, and you can't get to your next class, and they're really rude. Um, um. Jesus fucking Christ, Neil! How many times do we have to try this? One small step for a man, not man, a man, that's you. Everybody take five. Neil, practice your fucking life.
Yeah, let's see real pilots. How do we use real pilots? <laughs> Think of the moon landing is easy. You need dirt, wardrobe, a soundstage, a lot of black paints and stupid suits. The hard part is shutting people up. It's been for 36 years. You think the technicians and prop people, camera people, directors, everyone who works at NASA and the Jump Propulsion Lab in Pasadena and all the nice folks at Cape Canaveral in Florida, lots of members of the U.S. Congress and the White House all shut up about this amazing cover-up for all that time? The government couldn't even fucking cover up a break into a psychiatrist's office in a fucking cheesy hotel. What is the answer to all this shit? They couldn't cover that up. Fucking can't do anything. <laughs> Thank you for coming. I want to thank the Pikes Peak Skeptic Society for putting on the Colorado Springs Skeptic Camp, as well as the LGBT Center where the Skeptic Camp was held this year in Colorado Springs. I also do want to point out that there is a small correction to the talk that I gave, and that's that the Van Ellen radiation belts contain primarily beta radiation as well as protons, not helium atoms. The point remains the same, that they had adequate shielding, but it's protons, not helium, or hydrogen, not helium. That wraps up this topic on the seventh episode of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the podcast at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. I read every email, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please write review and rate it on iTunes, as well as recommend it to friends, family, and even frenemies.